Hello, in this week's show we're celebrating seven years without polio in India and finding out how it was done. Could the lessons learned help to overcome COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy? Also, the UN Human Rights Office announces a probe into grave rights abuses in Ethiopia's Tigray region. A call for solidarity for the tens of thousands of Rohingya refugees who've lost everything in a huge campfire in Bangladesh. And a call for an emergency summit to stop the violence in Myanmar. That's all coming right up. But first, the news. Alleged serious abuses and rights violations in Ethiopia's Tigray region are to be investigated by the UN. The Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, OHCHR, said on Thursday. The probe, which will be carried out jointly by the High Commissioner's Office and the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, is described as part of the much-needed accountability process for the victims. The development comes after fighting began in the North Ethiopian state on the 4th of November last year between forces loyal to regional power brokers, the TPLF, and and national government forces. Serious human rights violations and abuses have been reported, the UN Rights Office said in a statement. It pointed to the multiple actors involved in the conflict and the gravity of the reported violations and the need for an objective, independent investigation which will start as soon as possible and for an initial period of three months. To Myanmar now and an appeal from rights expert UN Special Rapporteur Tom Andrews for greater international pressure to resolve the deepening crisis there that's followed the military coup on the 1st of February. Conditions are deteriorating, Mr Andrews said on Thursday, warning that the situation will likely get much worse without an immediate robust response in support of those under siege. To date, more than 120 people have been killed by security forces, according to UN independent rights experts, and the UN Human Rights Office has condemned the soaring death toll. Mr Andrews underlined the ineffectiveness of sanctions, which have left the most lucrative business assets of the junta unscathed. In a call to UN member states, including those in the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, the European Union, the United States and China, the special rapporteur urged them to hold an emergency summit to provide a focused diplomatic solution to the crisis. The Rohingya refugees, who lost everything in a massive fire at a camp in southern Bangladesh, need the world's support more than ever. That's the message from the UN's emergency relief chief, Mark Lokok, who's released $14 million from a central fund to support thousands of families at Kutupalong camp in southern Bangladesh. Monday's blaze uprooted more than 45,000 mostly ethnic Rohingya. The cause of the fire is still unknown, as is the exact number of casualties at the camp. UN Children's Fund spokesperson James Elder told UN News shortly after the blaze was brought under control. UN teams on the ground have been reporting over the last sort of 12 hours that they've not really ever seen anything of this scale and intensity that has ripped through homes where you've often got 10 people living in a small shanty as a family or as an extended family. So the UN reporting at the moment that at least 15 people are dead, 400 are missing, Tens of thousands who, again, were already living in a very difficult situation. Tens of thousands have lost what they called their homes and whatever meagre possessions they had. In a statement on Thursday, Mr Lokok described the refugees who fled what top UN officials have likened to ethnic cleansing in Myanmar in 2017 as one of the world's most vulnerable communities. They need our support now more than ever as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to take its toll and with the approaching monsoon season, the UN Emergency Relief Coordinator explained. 
This is UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva with me, Daniel Johnson, from the UN News Team. Thanks for listening. Now to this week's interview, which is a good news story from India. This Saturday, the country will be celebrating seven years without polio, and this in a place that's been described as one of the most difficult to eradicate this preventable and debilitating disease. To find out how it did it, I've been speaking to Deepak Kapoor, chair of UN partner Rotary International's Polio Plus Committee. I am absolutely delighted that on the 27th of March this year, we will be celebrating seven years of certification of a polio-free India. It was and remains a momentous occasion in our lives. What does it mean for children and families in terms of their futures made safe? It is absolutely amazing relief for all mothers, fathers, and the children themselves to know that the specter of polio, the menace that the polio virus uh, poses, is no longer going to affect the lives of the immunized children. We've just got to make sure that the drops keep going into the mouths of all the children until the whole world is free of polio. For that, we have to keep immunizing and not forget that in 1988, India used to report 450 cases of polio every single day. Is there any way that COVID might help eradicate polio, this paralyzing disease, in those last two countries, while polio disease in Afghanistan and Pakistan, given the infrastructure that partners such as yourself, Rotary International, have in getting to rural and remote communities? Today, we have first-class health systems in developing countries like India, which can help tackle not only polio, but also help in the fight against COVID. We've got to try and promote immunization against polio, measles, rubella, diphtheria, you name it. And I think each of these fights would benefit from that. Let's talk about then another thing that we haven't mentioned, and that's suspicion of vaccines. And with your polio eradication efforts, you certainly encountered some resistance from minority communities. How do you get into those communities? There was a point in time when the entire polio eradication initiative, effort, drive, call it what you will, in India was completely at a standstill. And the reason for that was the suspicion in some of the minority communities in India that the vaccine was being used to limit the number of people from their community in the country. That was one. And the second was that the vaccine contained some substances, parts of an animal that were forbidden under the religion. What we really did because it was such a sensitive religious issue. The partnership gave Rotary the responsibility of heading this. And Rotary formed an ulema committee. Ulema means a distinguished teacher, but eventually after months and months of efforts and meetings, we managed to get them all in one room and talk the same language. And suddenly there was a see change in the entire scenario where people used to resist immunization actively, suddenly from every mosque in the country, all would go out on every Friday asking the faithful to come to prayer and 
to take their children to the nearest polio booth. Now, this is the kind of democracy that we will have to promote because in the case of COVID, it's not only 172 million people in India, the children in India, but we are talking of a massive population, as you know. And it's everyone, especially in the 18 plus age group that has to be immunized. It is a massive, massive task. However, the same lessons that we learned from polio in combating hesitancy in accepting immunization, I believe, can be utilized in COVID, a fight against COVID. And my last question to you, as Rotary International and partnering with the World Health Organization and others, you've been tackling polio since 1988. Please tell me it's not going to take, what, 20, 30 years to get back to normal after we've managed to vaccinate people against COVID. In our beginning in 1988, when we thought that polio would be finished and wrapped and done within maybe a couple of years or three years, we are today in 2021 still talking about two more endemic countries, uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan. Really speaking, the infrastructure is all there. The vaccine is available. The will, political will and the bureaucratic will is there in both those countries. Of course, there are issues about security and so on. You know, when we talk of the end of polio anywhere. I'm reminded of the words of a WHO, World Health Organization expert, who said to me when we were pretty frustrated right towards the end of 2009 or 10, that how long will it take us? So he said, think of the polio virus as being a rubber ball. What a different sort of rubber ball. When you drop a rubber ball, it bounces each time a little less than the last time. But polio is not like that. Here you will find you keep your act together in India, and one day the rubber ball will drop and not bounce up. And that is exactly what happened on the 13th of January 2011, when we had our last case of the wild polio virus. And I believe that in the case of COVID, if we get to most of the population, 90 or 95% plus across the world, this could go sooner than we anticipate. Rotary International's Deepak Kapoor, and you're listening to UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva with me, Daniel Johnson. And with me on the line is Solange Bejotegui-Cortez from UN Geneva's Information Service. As ever, hi Solange. Hola, Daniel. Nice to hear your voice again. So tell me about this, Solange. It's another good news story. First, we had Cambodia making great progress against HIV last week. And now, this week, we have India beating polio seven years on the trot. Are you on the floor in shock? Absolutely. I'm on the floor, but delighted. Seven years of certification of polio-free in India is excellent news. Receiving this news when the world is going through the COVID crisis, it's even better and very encouraging. It's like a secret voice telling us, you can defeat this virus. It's just a matter of time. 
And I hope like you, Dan, that it's going to take less than 23 years to do it. Listening to your interview with Deepak Kapoor, we see that the Indian success story is a combination of political will, public and private partnership, but also combating hesitation and building confidence in vaccination. We've all seen a child victim of polio or at least a photograph. It's an image we'd rather not see. But the worst thing is to think that it could have been avoided with a job that never came. We have an historic opportunity to fight COVID-19 using vaccines as a weapon against the virus. Let's keep in mind that getting vaccinated remains a far, far, far smaller risk than not having one. But there must be vaccines for all. As UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has said, vaccine equity is the biggest moral test before the global community. We must ensure that everybody, everywhere, can be vaccinated as soon as possible. Thanks for that, Solange. Totally agree with you. And according to the latest update from the World Health Organization, only 403 million vaccines have been administered globally. So really a long, long way to go. And perhaps just a little bit more information quickly from the UN Health Agency on the latest COVID-19 data. Confirmed cases continue to rise around the world for a fourth consecutive week with 3.3 million new cases reported in the past seven-day period. Deaths levelled off in the same period, but we're still at 60,000 in a week with Europe and the Americas continuing to account for nearly 8 in 10 of all cases and deaths. Notable increases in the number of new infections in Southeast Asia, the Western Pacific, Europe and the Eastern Mediterranean. More information from the WHO's COVID dashboard, www.covid19.who.int. So with that, it just remains for me to thank you listeners for your time, for catching up with the UN's work, and to you, Solange, for your comments as ever, and Justine Bryce, who is working hard behind the scenes to make this podcast available online. Catch you next week. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye for now. (music) 